There is great wisdom in Einstein's insight that if given an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend 55 minutes focusing on the problem and 5 minutes thinking about solutions. It's one of the perceptions helping us uncover practical solutions to the puzzle and pain of the human predicament. In the latest edition of the series, Current Openings, What the World Doesn't Quite Get Yet, we distill the new intelligence, power, and potential discovered as we face the challenges of living a purposeful life in a time of chaos and crises. In this conversation, Aviv Shahar and David Price Francis review the profound insights that are opening pathways to the true nature and potential of the human mind and emotions. Join us now for current openings number 10, The Einstein Brief. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. Welcome to Portals of Perception and to Current Openings, What the World Doesn't Quite Get Yet, Episode 10, a conversation where David Price, Francis, and I explore what is opening at the frontiers of the human experience. And today we are endeavoring to create an overview of the human predicament, the condensed version, where we intend to reflect on the last six episodes and distill some of the key themes of the predicament story. David is a spiritual teacher and a transformation expert, helping individuals and teams improve and enhance the quality of their lives and their relationships. David, welcome. Hey, thanks, Aviv. Good to be with you again for Current Openings 10. And we have generated for ourselves a tall order for today. But what's a life without choosing to create for ourselves impossible briefs? Yeah? Yep. So should I speak on what's alive in me at this moment about that matter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and then I'd like to lead into first into the question of why, but please go live with what's in you uh, at this point. Because I, I have an analogy, which hopefully our, uh, our viewers will, will enjoy, which is, I got this analogy turn up this week, which is collecting our experiences is like gathering potatoes. So we gather and gather and gather potatoes in our life. But then if we're going to actually then create something out of those potatoes, we need to have the ability to distill from the potatoes and ferment the spirit of what's at the essence when we can take them and bring them through a refining process. It was caused because you were, used the word distill. And I thought, well, that's just such a great example because according to our development, it's not just our experience that creates who we are, 
It's what we make of that experience. And I think that's fundamental to what we're getting to in the human predicament, because there's never been so many potatoes available in the realms of information, in terms of looking at in picking up other people's emotional experiences, the hearsay of the world. And I think of hearsay as hearing it and saying it without anything going on in between. So there's the hearsay of the world. It's never been so possible to kind of go through life gathering potatoes, but not making much of them. And that to me is very alive with me at the moment. So as you use the word distill, I thought to come in with that. Yeah, awesome um, opening there. So let me build on this idea of distilling the spirit out of things and build another angle into the why we have chosen to focus on the predicament story. And it's curious because halfway through the journey, at some point you have shared what we now call the Einstein brief. And you actually said uh, that his advisory was focus 95% on the problem. And by bringing 95% of your focus to the problem, that will help you unlock the 5% solution. So in some way, even before I've heard this story from you, we intuitively, both of us felt, let's embark on the predicament story. And I want to build just another layer of appreciation and offer a deeper context. Why indeed the, the journey to appreciate the predicament story and to access what I, I want to um, address in this, I need to refer to our first ever current openings where we visited with the three sisters, Sister Esoteric, Sister Mesoteric, and Sister Exoteric. And in the way we have spoken of them, we described the sense that the senior Sister Esoteric is obviously representing realms of special insights. And when you reflect on the dynamic of these three realms, it becomes evident that the exoteric, even the mesoteric, but certainly the exoteric, the exterior view of esoteric, is often to think that it's to do with a secret, that when we speak of the esoteric, we talk about secretive realms. And this, of course, is the exterior view of the interior, the exoteric view of the interior, which by design, by definition, can only be exterior, but is not at all the interior view of itself. The esoteric doesn't view itself as a secret. What it does is it, it recognizes, it sees, it, it appreciates that there are dimensions and realms that to see, to witness, to appreciate, to recognize, we would need to enter a different level or a different plane or a different realm, and that appreciating these realms, which we call esoteric realms, would often involve conjuring up or generating a certain activation, a certain presence, a certain inner conductivity with which there is a faculty activation that previously was not available. So therefore, 
a better framing than a secret is to think of these realms as very much in the sense of activated versus latent, dormant versus awake, offline versus online. And so when we begin to think about it in this way, it brings up a central question, which is, so what is the initiatory process? How do we activate that which is latent? What is the psychoactive agent? What is the psychoactive process that will bring online that which is offline? Namely, the faculty activation and the inner conductivity that will make us uh, accessible, available, attractive for deeper, more profound, more esoteric insights to show up with us. And this by itself is going to be an inquiry that we will embark on in next episodes. What I want to do today in the context of why approaching the path we have taken is to simply state that entering the problem as Einstein proposed is one of the possible initiatory paths. So the study of the human predicament is one possible path to enter the the initiatory crucible where we may be able to access these kinds of insights. And what I'm proposing is that by embracing the discomfort, by stepping into the challenging nature of the human predicament, there is in that confrontation indeed what something that we can describe a, a latent fuel and what I'm proposing is is a possible initiatory crucible. And what I want to propose and see, David, is that it's one out of six or seven paths, and I want to just quickly name those six and seven paths that we will get back to in the future and then let you play jazz with it, and then we will proceed into a review of those episodes where we explored the predicament story. So, about the exoteric, mesoteric, esoteric, it just dawned on me maybe why that analogy of the potatoes cropped up in the way that it did. Because I'm thinking in the exoteric, you get what's available at street level, and in a way you're collecting your potatoes. So you're collecting information, you're collecting and gathering to yourself. The mesoteric is where you're starting to develop the necessary assemblies, almost like the machinery to then be able to refine the potatoes. This is what mostly goes under the name of personal development, human development, learning how to create pathways in oneself. And that would be the the beginning of the fermentation process, having the equipment to then work with the exoteric but the esoteric would actually be spirit. And the, as many potatoes as a person collects, they're not going to get vodka unless they can take it through a process and then get the spirit of the potatoes. So the esoteric comes with, as you just said, high conductivity, and it comes with evidence. And the evidence is latent latent faculties, latent abilities begin to activate. So then we get increase in serendipity, we get increase in clairvoyance, we get increase in what's been known as the sixth sense. 
And these come naturally as part of that esoteric domain. So in the mesoteric, we can talk about it. In the exoteric, we collect the stuff. In the mesoteric, we can talk about it. But in the esoteric, we actually are connected and have it. And so it's actually accessible and is spiritually active. People say a lot to me these days, oh, he's a spiritual person. That's a spiritual person. But what is a spiritual person? I think that's part of what we'll be getting into, but it is connected to that three-step system, the three sisters, as you said. Indeed. And you're beautifully putting the magnifying glass on the process of distillation or extraction. And, and obviously, in the digestive level, that process is automated, as we have reflected on. And what you're proposing is that where it comes to the impressions of all that surrounds us, unless we deliberately apply an intent, a chosen focused intent, and what I will now describe in the six or seven path, different ways to apply this intent, unless we do so, we just become potato in, inside and in amidst um, many other potatoes. And so another way to call the conversation we're having now is how to transcend the, the potato level of life <laughs> in, <laughs> into the spirit level of life. So let me seed, let me seed these different paths because we, one of the things we're trying to do here in current openings is to always offer that there isn't just one way, there isn't just one solution, there isn't just one truth. There are many paths to unlock these possibilities. And indeed, the first path we propose is getting immersed in the predicament, getting immersed in the problem, and let that path by working on the problem in the way Einstein proposed, conjure up in you Potentially by introducing a sense of urgency and desperation, but even more so by immersing yourself with the impossibility of the human conundrum. And right there when you face impossibility and surrender that we cannot actually in any planning or any egoic jiu-jitsu bypass the conundrum. We have to indeed surrender and uh, get ourselves tethered to other realms of potential. So that's path one. The second is a sentiment-based devotional journey, which is a special alternative to getting immersed in the problem, but cannot be easily enacted directly on YouTube, because it's more the way of being and living in the inner discovery of the radical intimacy with life in the every moment-by-moment moment journeying in the everything we touch, the most mundane aspects of life uh, where we experience nature, the mundane moments of relationship where there is another quality, a sentiment of a, a deeper kind of living. And, and you often find that people that sought this path actually embarked on the monastic retreat from the city life. So that's a, a second path into that search of communion with the esoteric potential. The third I propose is the communal journey. And it has its opportunities and challenges. It has its lights and shadows. 
and it has its ecstasies and, and agonies. I, my adding up my experience, and I'm curious whether you'd agree with that, it's an element we probably cannot do without. And certainly is something that has a profoundly enriching dimension, the communal, the relational journey, where we get to be able to source what we perhaps can describe as a distributed collective intelligence and discovery. A bit like the way we are exploring in our own dialogue here. So this is the third path. Let me quickly frame four, five, and six. I might have a seven that just appeared in my mind uh, on my morning run. And let's see if that's seven, because what's a six without a seven? But number four, I've chosen to frame, this will make you smile. I've chosen to frame the fourth path as the apprenticeship path. And in this approach, you'd be working directly with a teacher, with a mentor, with a development Sherpa to ease, to guide your discovery. This path too brings its challenges and opportunities. And in many ways, it's difficult to find in the modern world and the postmodern world a way into this. This was more the way of the ancient world. Today, there are a number of difficulties. First, can you find that teacher? Second, can it be a circumstance that's not captured in some business model? And third, can you embark on this with the awareness that we are now living into the post-guru phase of development, enlightenment, where we, we all seek to transcend and escape the guru trap, the all-knowing one person, but rather be in a shared discovery. So that is what I describe as the fourth path, so, such that it rhymes with the people that have chosen to follow the Gorgifian uh, fourth path. And the fifth path I'd suggest as a way into esoteric discovery is the journey of service, the journey where we step into some kind of a functional role or assisting or leading or counseling or coaching others. And this for me has been the main initiatory journey. I've discovered that the best way for me to learn was to try to teach it to others because <laughs> I discovered what I didn't know. Yep. And I discovered sometime mid-lesson that I was talking about stuff I didn't really understand. So embarrassment was a huge propelling development uh, energy and fuel. And I found that time and again, when you are helping others, when you're in service, the, the functional capacity that I attempted to serve in became the development catalyst. Rather than me developing me, the effort, the, the genuine search to how can I best facilitate, lead, counsel, coach, that became a powerful discovery path. And the sixth path is very similar to the fifth. It's, I describe it as a mission-based endeavor and practical application where the purpose, the mission, 
the project we're working on leads the development rather than we try to do development on ourselves. And this Portals project has been just such an opportunity for me because time and again it exposed the opportunity areas. Opportunity areas is a nicer word to say where I recognize my shortcomings and where I have a development opportunity areas to be more, more whatever, all of the above. And so all of these different paths, they present a, a challenge, a confrontation. And this morning as I was running, I recognized, well, fair enough, that there is a seventh path. It's a very rare one, very difficult one. I think it'll be more complete to bring it into this, which is you'd have the very, very, very few special people who developed what I would describe as domain mastery. And I'm talking about the Eliud Kipchoges, the, who just broke again the, the world record in the marathon run in, in the Berlin Marathon. I'm talking about the Katie Ladecki in the pool. I'm talking about the Meryl Streep in the acting space. I'm talking about any great person in the arts, in sports, in business, in philosophy, in theology, in the sciences. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but out of the very, very, very few who develop domain mastery, out of those, this select group, 95% of them, they get um, to identify with what they do in their domain mastery. Yep. 5%, I'm guessing, David, transcend their domain and recognize that what they've had to embrace in assimilating this domain were, were, that they mastered were some core principles that we can say were tethered to what on a different conversation on portals and where we will come back to again to define as the universal operating system, which we talked about earlier on as the, the natural laws is the universal operating system. And what I'm proposing that that is a path to enter the esoteric as well through the specialization and the mastery of a domain and then actually transcending that domain and and looking to discover what are the transferable, teachable principles that you had to master in order to become so proficient in that domain. Again, very rare because you're talking about a ex very exclusive small group and then an even smaller exclusive group out of that. I don't actually know that the names I mentioned are in that category, but potentially they are leaning into that. So path one, the predicament study, which we are on here, Path two, the devotional journey. Path two, the communal. Path three, the communal relational journey. Number four, the apprenticeship, working with a teacher, with a counselor, with a leader. Number five, a functional service kind of a role. Number six, a mission or a project that develops you. And number seven, a domain you master that you then seek to distill again. Here is this word again, <laughs> paid attention to, and, and find the, the spirit that inhabit that domain. The, the discovery for me when I look at these seven, they each represent 
a confrontational challenge at one point or another. And I think what it says is that to truly enter the realms that we are seeking, we need to unlock the fuel, the power to help us bridge into those domains. And what we have chosen to do here is to follow the Einstein brief to get ourselves immersed in the challenging predicament of the human situation as a way to siphon and initiate the the know-how and the energetic and the spiritual dimension that we believe is part of the human promise, the human proposition that we intend to journey into as the next phase beyond the the predicament. So I just said quite a bit. I'll let you play jazz with that. (laughs) Great. Yeah, that's great. So the, the seven ways. So I think starting with the predicament that if we don't realize there is a predicament, we don't get to the starting gate. So if we're in our lives and we just think, well, this is the way that life is, and I need to be in harmony with the world culture, the way it goes on, and that's as far as it goes, then we're staying with the exoteric. We're staying within the fact that I've got my, say, my established religion that I was born into. I've got the schooling that I received. I've got the job that my parents recommended. And I'm following in my father's footsteps, to take that example, or I'm, or I'm rebelling against it and going the other way. Um, but it's all shaped, it's all formed in accordance with the way the cultures of the world are established at this moment. So that would be the way of going forward through life without really recognizing that we are in a predicament. We'd have our little individual predicament moments, like should I in the West, should I date this person or that person? Or should I go to this business or that business? The kind of minutiae of coaching, the detail. But we're not getting into the idea, why am I on the planet? Why am I here? What is the human being doing on planet Earth? What is the purpose a human life? And how do we get to the essence of that? That's a question that takes us from the exoteric into the mesoteric. And a person might find themselves going into the libraries of the world, looking up the various philosophical views on different ideas as to what is the case where that is concerned, till they get to the point where they may realize, and this I think is a switch from the in that last domain that um, I think what you just called domain development, which I think is a great term, the domain development, which is it goes from I can do it to the point of realizing I can't do it, but it can do it. Mm. And then a person is accompanied by something, like sometimes, as you said, in the sports domain, people literally do what seems to be impossible. Like you see someone like Michael Jordan defying gravity and just hanging out in midair and holding there before coming back down again. It's like, well, how does a human do that? And and I see a sports figure who does something incredible, like in, in soccer, like they do a backflip and they hit the ball from an impossible angle into the back of the net. And then they look astonished. And then they go, and then they start taking congratulations from the people around them. But they actually didn't know they could do it. They didn't do it consciously something else assisted. And I think that's part of the mystery then of our subconscious. And there's a lot to get to in there. But it's kind of a surrender to I can't, but it can. And um, so whereas the mesoteric goes, yes, I can, yes, I can, yes, I can. 
at some point in the esoteric, it turns the other way. And it's like, well, it can. And I have systems inside me that are way more intelligent than I am. And that when those systems activate, then we can actually be the beneficiary of that. And I think that's where the domain development, and a person may flash in and out of it. They might be really, really good in their domain development and practice, but then there comes a moment where something else accompanies them and it's kind of puts an electric quiet. My wife, Joanna, gives this example multiple times, which was about Laurence Olivier. She was a big fan of his at the time. And how there was a particular, like he would do his version of King Lear and the rest of the people would leave. They'd go downstairs, you know, go and get a cup of tea, whatever. But she said there was this one night where he tapped into something and all of the people who were the assistants and the, you know, the other cast members, they were all in the wings, just kind of all inspired. And at the end, it was like he said, that's one of those rare times when it wasn't me doing that. And he plugged in to the power source of what was written. And well, like the anagram, King Lear became King Real for the night. You know, he plugged into the reality of it and got that. So I think there's, there's uh, by being inside the human predicament, it creates the opportunity for the human possibility or the human potential to then drop in. So we start to have perceptions that otherwise we wouldn't be able to have. And that that's the Einstein principle at work. Sticking with the problem long enough, not so that I get a solution or I have a potential answer, but that the potential answer kind of gets caused to appear. And that then will be the real potential solution rather than the, well, I think this might work. And I think this might work. Yeah. So there's a difference between those. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for um, framing this um, pivot point from the surrender pivot point from I can, I should be able to, I can't, and uh, to the point of uh, surrender. And what I propose is that given the challenging nature of these times, as we looked at these six or seven paths, the, the best case scenario is to be engaged in all seven of them, all six or all seven of them concurrently, because we would each be finding the, the tethering moment of surrender, of an uplift through a different path at a different time. And we need those modalities, those paths, those fuels, if we are to indeed connect and realize the, the greater human promise, which is where we are heading beyond today. We still have a, something we now want to embark on. So I'd, I'd want now to, to with that lead into it. And uh, the way it turns up uh, to me is, is to call through the framings of these six explorations. In current openings four, we looked at the brain-body conundrum. So what is most alive for you right now about this first exploration where we framed the journey into the human predicament story? And just before getting into that, it just dawns on me that when you spoke about the seven different dynamics to work on at the same time, potentially concurrently, of course there would be seven, because as we looked at in the natural laws, 
anything real is going to work by those natural laws. So there will be seven parts. So the seventh part would, of course, then drop in there. And interesting, in the alchemical processes, they would go from what they called gross or dross through seven processes. It was always seven processes, including fermentation, heating, cooling, but seven processes to distill a spiritual value. So again, natural laws at play, the nature of seven. So not by chance that we have six current openings, dynamics, starting with brain, body, conundrum, and a seventh thing will appear therefrom, I'm thinking. So with regard to the brain, body, conundrum. What's live in me today is how mental faculty can work in separation from the rest of our system. It doesn't have to, but we're trained to use it in that fashion. So rather than mental faculty, even being trained from early on into the dynamics of the working of the rest of our system. Like if someone specializes in anatomy, they get to look at that. But it would be part of the natural education of any human being to know that, as an example, the adrenals are on top of the kidneys and what the kidneys look like. And here's your liver. And this is what your liver does. And this is your heart. This is your spleen. And this is how all this is these parts. And they're all working at the same time, supporting your life. And therefore, mental faculty is integrated with the rest of our system. But unfortunately, as part of our human predicament, all of that can be taken for granted while the person is focusing their attention on how can I improve the exterior design of a motor car? Or how can I come up with an advertising slogan that is going to sell the most beans or whatever it is? And so the life is going along the track of what is economically or encouraged in the culture of the world, but which actually does bring about an integration within themselves. So there tends to be a separating out between brain function and body function, part of which is automatically, thankfully, wired in so we can't affect it. But then we have the ability in our conscious mind to turn our mind to whatever it is that we want to gather. And so if we gather the best information about baseball cards on the planet, it's not the right kind of potatoes. So there is an issue about the potatoes. I'll use this analogy, which is we want to gather quality potatoes to make, to then have a distillation process. So if we spend our life, our brain life, playing Mutant Ninja 3 or something, some video game dynamic, which is very separated from the universe, the idea of the meta universe, the human made universe. Well, probably shouldn't be called universe anyway, for one thing, but it would be the the meta fantasy or the meta disconnect. And then that would be bringing in something which is alien to our systems. And will actually set us up for contradiction, various kinds of anxiety, more medications get sold to handle that. And we're dealing with the disconnect between our brain and our body in that sense. So probably most of the chronic, so-called chronic disease, but a great part of that cause is the disconnect between these two parts, I think. And so in the brain-body conundrum, this indeed was the focusing point, the disconnect from of the, the brain and the gateway to the higher system 
from the body. And as a result of that, the, the inability to access the natural enhancement, the natural intuition, and the inner compass of the human system. And we told the story of how that over the last several centuries, coupled with the extractive, exploitative economy and financialization of the economy, delivered the, to the disembodied species that we have become a way for the brain to run amok with high-octane stimulations. And that as a result of that, we find ourselves in a place that, that is uh, highly imbalanced. And it was that which led us into Current Openings 5, where we focused on the addiction trap and reflected on how so much of life today is captured in variety of addictions, not just food addiction, not just obvious addictions to substances, but how so much of modern life is an expression of acting out of a place of lack and out of a sense of want, and that what feels this absence are a variety of obsessive and possessive and addictive behaviors. So what's a life for you about that theme that we explored in Current Openings 5, the addiction trap? At the moment, I would link it to what we were just speaking about, which is if from our brain, in the brain-body conundrum, we could consult with our liver, then our liver would say, well, let's not do that quantity of alcohol every week. Let's just back away from that. And it wouldn't be a brain decision. It would be a brain consultation with the rest of the system. If we could consult with our adrenals, we might get a message which would say, just cut back on the coffee. You know, there's, I can only handle so much caffeine a day. But because the brain doesn't consult, unless there's an extreme, it does when there's a, a massive sort of, you know, the, it, there's a rebellion, then it will take itself usually to an, a so-called outside expert for some kind of symptomatic pill. So then the person can keep living the way they're already living. So the addiction trap is a part of the predicament of it is living within a very narrow focus that is a reduced down life. It, we shrink, shrunk down to the point where we're not actually receiving messages from the rest of our system. And therefore, we're operating on brain stimulation. And the brain stimulation, the thing with our brain that I've certainly working with my own brain, is it loves stimulation. Oh. Especially the, you could say, the part that is working with life on a daily basis, it actually wants stimulation. So therefore, there's lower kinds of stimulation, which are to be found in the exoteric. But there's also potentially higher stimulation, but we need to get through the boredom. Like something about meditation, another name for meditation, you could almost say it's a boredom practice, or mindfulness is really a mind emptiness practice. So we have to sit through the boredom and prevent the quick, easy stimulation to get to the deeper chambers, where which are not addictive, 
they actually work by, I'd say, connection rather than addiction. They're not trying to fill a hole, which is such a narcissistic feature that always empty, never enough. There's always got to be more coming in. But there's a big difference between the experience of eating and consuming, which then we have to break it down. And then we need another, like if we're eating, eating whatever it is, then we need another one. And listening to a piece of music where we're connecting rather mm. than consuming. And so getting into those energetic connections. Yes. And the additional dimension we brought into the addiction trap conversation was the recognition of the level of toxicity that life, large part of human life is now surrounded by on all levels and, and fronts. And inside it, we framed addiction really as the persistent and intense urge to do or use something that brings unhealthy negative consequences. And the, the worse the consequences and the impact, the greater the urge. And what we framed there when we looked at the, this conundrum was the idea of the toxic lake and how do you clean the toxic lake. And the invitation was to recognize that the brain cannot solve its own problem. A separated ego cannot release its and liberate its separation. It needs, as we said earlier, something else. It needs to reach the point of I can't. Therefore, I'm ready to receive another kind of help. And that led us into current openings six, where we focused on the planetary program and wondered what is the planetary program, how to think about the planetary programs, and why is it part of the predicament story? What would you say is alive for you there? One of the things you said in that conversation, you started by saying that the universe doesn't need to reinvent itself every morning. The tree knows how to grow from its roots. The squirrels, it knows what it needs to do. And so where would you lead in this review of the planetary program? I would start with the, the dynamic in one of our, the current openings on the natural laws that the ego might like to think that we can do whatever we want when we want, but that we can only do that within the framework, the parameters of the natural laws. Yes, we can create a machine to fly, but we can't flap our own hands and take off and fly. So we can work within those laws to invent things to give us what appear to be extra freedoms, but they're still governed within the framework of universal law. So when it comes to the planetary program, I think the first acknowledgement is that there is one. And if we can just start with the fact that we are part of the organic life of the planet, and there are certain laws within which we operate. And that is a great thing, because if we did not have a framework, we would not be able to have any freedoms whatsoever. Like what would be an example of a planetary program is the need to sleep and what really happens during sleep. These fundamental mysteries that are 
not understood. Like I read a report a little while ago, they're still claiming that sleep is something we need because when we were being chased by saber-toothed tigers, we had to go up in the upper branches of a tree and go completely quiet. Literally, that was a university, you know, just that was a university program study. It meant resources into it to come up with that conclusion completely ignoring the the energy dynamic that we've spoken about which is that when we go to sleep our systems get recharged by the planet and we can look and see that all people on planet are governed by the same planetary programs so that we need to eat physical food we need to drink liquid we need to breathe air and we need to receive light and electrical impressions it doesn't matter if you're talking about a king a priest a beggar the whole of man woman the whole of human existence is within a planetary program and if we can first of all say yes to that then we can start looking well what does that say about our purpose within the program rather than rather than what do i think just straight as an opinion without any substantia by looking at the reality of what is what does that then indicate what are the signs and indications of what the purpose of the human could be based upon the program that we've been given that we're operating within because it would have to be within the program we're we're, we're working with because we can't paint with a color that doesn't exist. You know, it's like if I say, think of a color that doesn't exist. We can't because human beings are designed to be working with the energies of the universe and the idea of being able to create something. Well, that's taking things that already exist and causing them to appear in a, in a dynamic new compound, but they still were already there. So, we find ourselves within that planetary program. So I think that's part of the predicament is ignoring that fact. Right. And we made a philosophical, theological, practical leap or several leaps in these conversations because what we essentially said was the number one, the universe is a living system. And this living system, when we say it's alive, it means it is a place full of energy. And it has two drivers. One, the first, it wants to preserve itself, to preserve and conserve energy. And then it wants to allocate the preserved and conserved energy to evolve and become more sophisticated, more capable, more connected, more intelligent. And what we said was that one of the earliest evolutionary capacities that came online is this very idea, this very permission of programmability that there can be a program such that, as you said, the program of the lungs, the inhale and exhale, the, the program of the tree growing from its roots, the program that enables for a neural pathway, the program that enables the eye, all those programmatic developments, they, each one of them, once the first blueprint has been developed, it's been released as an open source to all to the rest of organic life from the universe through the planetary system and to all that exists. So, and what we said about this was the universe would want to do and evolve a programmability as a capacity such that it can move on to the next task, to the next evolution, to the next development. And such that 
it doesn't need to invest energy in redoing what it ha- has already done. And the other nuanced realization in it was that therefore built into the programs is that once the program is activated, it is energetically more efficient to run the program on rather than to do a stop, start, stop, start. And that in actual fact, why we integrate this into the predicament story is because all our habits, what is a habit? A habit is simply the human system using this programmability given to us by the planetary program. And so we realized that all our habits, including the the unproductive and destructive habits, they all use the planetary program. And the, the point we then focused on was how critical it is and will always be that we re-engage with the leading edge of consciousness through the lens of we can choose which program, which habits will we power and which are the programs, which are the habits that are destructive, they produce the wrong kind of addictions and are detrimental for us. And the discovery there is that unless we practice this discernment, we become uh, subject to, we are captured by all those undesired habits and are not able to live up to our fullest potential. So that was another angle as to why we brought the planetary program and, and the charge to become conscious we make erroneous choices and those choices that are self-inflicting choices where the program that we wouldn't necessarily want to be led by hijack our system. So that was all part of the, the planetary program was a conversation about the, the facet of the predicament that invites us into the project of conscious evolution rather than surrendering to just an, a, an unconscious automated living. And I know you may want to say something about that, but let me give you the chance to bridge from that to what became current openings seven, where we focused on the knowledge problem. So anything else you'd, you'd say about the bridge from the, we made from the planetary program to the knowledge problem in current opening seven? Well, first, I think to link together the first three, actually, they kind of came together in as much as the the planetary program means that inside of us, we have this faculty, as you said, to create a habit and then keep keep doing the same thing. So that would take us into the addiction trap because we addict, we get addicted to thinking the same thing over and over again by repetition. And that would bring us into the brain-body conundrum because it's in our brain that that keeps happening. So meanwhile, our actual body, our heart is working in the now, doing what it's doing, but our brain can be going, oh, I'm worried about money. I'm worried about money. And so it's doing its repetition at the level of something which is pre-programmed and is keeping on running. That becomes an addictive brain pattern, whether or not we actually have a great deal of money or not. And that, in turn, is linked to that brain-body conundrum because it's a brain pattern that keeps running that doesn't have that much to do with the rest of the system. 
Then we get to the knowledge problem. So I'm seeing how these all do tie up together because the knowledge problem is that we stay with the same knowledge that we already have, or we gather knowledge to ourselves that fits with our pre-existing route. I'll give an example that struck me this week, which is that if someone goes to the bus terminal, and there's all these different buses they can get, but they used to get in the number six bus. So what they do is that every time they go to the terminal, they get on the number six bus, and they just go around and around on the number six bus. Now, somebody comes up to them and says, there is a number nine bus you go. You can go on the number nine bus. No, 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 I don't do that. I'm on the number six bus. And then they carry on going around the same circuit. And then anything that's going to get brought in from knowledge has to fit with what goes with the number six route. And this is how we end up with personal bias, personal, a whole mountain of opinion that may or may not be rooted in reality. So we're bringing in knowledge in the the information age where we can gather vast amounts of knowledge based upon our pre-existing circuit. So we simply support our biases and our bias is something which keeps us away from the truth. So the ability to be open to new knowledge, which can be uncomfortable, in fact, is almost guaranteed to be somewhat uncomfortable to our brain because it goes, but I, I didn't, I thought I knew about this. Those words, oh, I don't know. You don't hear those as often. And looking to gather the knowledge that brings a successful result rather than knowledge that says, well, I'm going to win this argument. Yeah, which goes into this sort of, you either win or you lose according to whether you've got the knowledge to make your point. Whereas really the reality would be getting closer to what the truth is not whether what I think is right or whether what you think, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. What matters is do we get closer to the truth, right? So the bridging, the potent bridging you are making the from uh, the addiction trap to the planetary program into the knowledge problem through the appreciation of the synaptic or circuitry locking is truly riveting because what you're saying is that those repetitive thoughts, what they do, they create strong synaptic connections that then the grooves in our brain and we keep repeating those. And when you were describing that, the thought that occurred to me is how much, like if most people, if any person could stop in the middle of the day and get um, like one of those... Um, data points that they are connected to on, on the Apple Watch or, or other sophisticated electronics and, and devices, if they could actually get a report, a readout of how much of their energy is consumed in repetitive, addictive, not chosen, not intentional kind of processes that are part of those synaptic uh, noise-making generating in the background it's extraordinary so the, the really the what the proportion may be 90% or 95% of the energy so that is another way to appreciate the einstein brief when he said 95% of your energy focus on the problem mean truly really get immersed in the conundrum you're trying to solve and i can Certainly from my own experience, the times where I felt most creative 
were the times that I could stay, sometimes for hours, sometimes with, for days, with a line of inquiry and kept on producing and generating. And there, there is a lot that we will get to in terms of practices, how to engage in contemplative practices to rediscover this focused kind of generative capacity. And that leads us truly to the the knowledge problem, because what we said in the knowledge problem was that we've been conditioned away from the natural ways of knowing, and we've been many ways enculturated and programmed from nat- away from natural alignment and natural intelligence into what we described as packaged sclerotic knowledge, indoctrinated in, into privileging the complicated sclerotic classroom knowledge. And as a result of that, we are weaker and not as vibrantly engaged in the a kind of perceptive, natural and perceptive faculties. And that that is where the knowledge problem arises and that so much of the, you shared some potent and, and somewhat humorous uh, reflections on, on your education, earlier education, and also uh, advanced education and how so much of it is not wired to discovering universal truth, but to commoditize us as, as part of the consumer producing for the economy. In, instead of the economy working for us, we become, we call it even knowledge workers. But what that really meant was that we became productive units for the profit-making machines that, that were developed in the modern and the postmodern world, rather than discovering that knowledge was a profound gift of being a conscious life, and that we are actually here to produce new knowledge and new beauty and new connective possibility, which again is where we're heading to in the idea of the human promise and the human proposition. And that to unlock that potential, we first need to re-engage with new knowledge pathways and in a sense liberate ourselves from the packaged junk food knowledge that we process every day through all the, the media channels that are largely competing for our attention by producing more fantastical, whatever, extraordinarily triggering headlines that will get us into the brainstem because of the stimuli that they generate. So all that we sensed and explored in the knowledge problem. Yes. I think at one point you even called it the eyeball economy or something of that nature. Like, you know, the economy of how many eyeballs can you get to look at something? And what's become the currency is how much human attention can something gather, regardless of whether it has any intrinsic value. So is that even worthy of being called knowledge? Maybe it needs a different word. It may be because it doesn't have potency. So it's not something like the word no has in it the word now. It's something brings potency in the now. 
most so-called knowledge is actually just a regurgitation of the past. So it'd be better to have another name for it and just and just say, well, I'm I'm looking at the repeat of something. I'm looking at old potatoes. <laughs> yeah, and we also, David, in in this uh, exploration into the knowledge problem, tackle head on the Google fallacy. Yeah, and the belief that all knowledge can be accessed on a Google search. And we actually framed seven knowledge streams that are not searchable on Google. Number one, the tacit pre-verbal knowledge that we've all accessed early in our life, certainly before we were able to read and even before language became available for us. Number two, the experiential knowledge stream. Number three, the character forming knowledge, which we talked about in in the sense of uh, what are the character forming that developed in you when you face, for example, challenge. And then we talked about number four, the knowledge stream of the contemplative, concentrated, contemplative, discovered knowledge. That's the Einstein brief, the staying with an inquiry in, in a meditative or contemplative way until your view of the world and the universe opens to a whole new realization. And right next to it, we looked at the idea of intuitive knowledge and also hard knowledge, which we kind of brought these two into the the fifth stream, even though they each represent a unique, distinct knowledge stream. And then we, we, in the sixth one, we looked at development knowledge, which very much is in line with, with what you were describing earlier about the esoteric inquiry about purpose and such, where you embark on these not as an intellectual pursuit, but as a living urgency of I'm here, this life is not a dress rehearsal, this is it, the now is all I have, what is it all about, what's the meaning of it, and entering through these to a development inquiry that brings online knowledge, and the seventh knowledge stream, which we named as connected knowledge, all of these we said were not part of the sclerotic education classroom experience that really trained us to regurgitate what's already in books rather than liberate the natural faculty and possibility of human life. And it was that which led us into current openings eight that we framed as the energy problem and the interior human energy problem in how we suffer the fragmentation, the erosion of our well-being and and energy. And there was a direct link there from knowledge to energy. What would you say to that? What's alive uh, for you about this inquiry? I think that's a seventh stream that you mentioned, connective, connective or connected knowledge. And that is connective knowledge brings with it, just like connecting two wires together, something flows through. It's the idea of current openings, that there's a current flowing through the opening. So when there's connective knowledge, it's not only a reference, but it actually brings with it a potency and a power that can be felt throughout the whole system. So that's when we have words like revelation or contemplation, that a revelation is different than an idea. So an idea, people get together and brainstorm, and they're they're sharing ideas that are already in their brains. 
But then the idea of a new intelligence dropping in, if they come up with something that's actually new, then they, there's an excitement. People feel excited. There's like, oh, I can't wait to get on with this. There's like a, they actually feel like a thrilling or a trilling going through their nervous system. So there's something coming into our brain mind system, which is then trilling through the rest of the system. And it brings with it an integration. So it really is not... It's so not not part of the world vocabulary right now, the idea that there's a toxic level of energy and there's an illuminated level of energy and there's all kinds of levels in between. I mean, to take our example of that seven levels, there's going to be seven levels of energetics and there's going to be right down the bottom, you get the bottom, you get the flounders, you get the puffer fish, you get toxic energy which would be the energy associated with behaviors like to go right down, you know, murder, deliberate deceitfulness, genocide. I mean, hey, not to spend too long there, but every human action has an energy attached to it. It isn't that some energies, some behaviors don't have actions. So when we say that's a kind person, we're saying they've got an energy of kindness which has been established in them for so long that we say they're kind. If we say that's a callous person, they've had experiences and they their character has caused them to be a certain way. And I think we said in that particular one that the big words that we use, they're not describing physical things. They're saying things like, well, he's that, that's a kind person. That's a generous person. That gives me hope. That gives me grief. That gives me despair. Each one of these words is describing an energy not a physical substance. And so as human beings, we're so clearly energy beings, but the science and the, the current emphasis on the knowledge, the knowledge problem is so focused on the material world that it misses the dynamic of the energy worlds, almost uh, not entirely, but to a very large extent. And yet it's in our common day-to-day vocabulary. Mm. You know, we speak energies all the time. But they're not the stuff of the universities, apart from in philosophy or poetry. So to me, the energy, the connection, when we get the right kinds of understanding and we have a pursuit of purpose, we can make an energy connection that that actually causes that kind of coolness and trilling. We feel it in our whole system. And that is going to be sure that big part of the human proposition is how we can raise the level of our vibration, not only mentally, but uh, in every other aspect. And the point we made in the energy problem is that in most circumstances, the natural access of well-being and energy is meant to be part of the going on of life. But that today, often right from the get-go, right from the point of birth, the toddlers of the world and, and then certainly adults, we find ourselves in an environment that's toxic, that's not natural for us, that erodes, that disintegrates the, the natural well-being and energy. And, and we suffer as a result disharmony. We suffer dis-ease because the natural human orchestra that ought to play in a place of harmony is playing a painful cacophonous disharmony and that that was the first predicament and the second dimension inside it is that we consume a lot of energy that's not good for us as you said toxic energy we surround ourselves with sources of 
energies that pull us down there, not just people and impressions. And I mean, what are the stimuli that uh, even toddlers get uh, right uh, through the, the first few years of their lives? A lot of it is not directing their synaptic connections to their natural gifts, but is more what is stimulating and keeping their parents engaged and alive and, and after the parents are dealing with their, their stresses and struggles and that's part of the challenging environment of growing in postmodern world and trying to then find a place of center in yourself where you're energetically able to settle down and not be forever seeking from a place of lack or absence or deprivation. And the third dimension of the energy problem was that as a result of everything we are both describing, we no longer have the, the easy access to our own instincts and intuition that will guide us as to what is a good and what is not so good and in most circumstances even poisonous for us. So when you take it to um, the ancient world and and or even to our ancestral capacity to live in the jungle and know and, and be able to observe which and what is what would be a good and productive and healthy food for you and what would be poisonous, that knowledge disappeared. But even if you like the the medical profession of 100 years ago where being a doctor, and I'm not romanticizing the past, there is tremendously rich data that's wonderful now, but largely the capacity of a doctor to observe the patient and just in the first few minutes as the patient walks into the room, not even need to take the vital signs, but actually listen to them and observe them and, and know almost instantly some of what they're dealing with, that is a disappearing knowledge. And it's just analogous to how we're losing our own capacity to access energetically what's uh, good for us and not, what's not good for us. And on top of all that, we added the other fourth dimension of energy problem in the idea that we're surrounded by energy robbers and uh, we're being energetically robbed from inside by anxiety and fear and worry and stress and outside by people and friends that are not so good for us. So all of that led us naturally to current openings nine and the emotion problem. And we said the emotion is really a central element of the energy system. And the, the risk with the emotion is that it's very easy to be hijacked in our emotions and once we do, it's one of the fastest way to burn our energy in an unproductive way. What else is alive for you in the exploration of the emotion and its place in the human predicament story? I'd say primarily the first, first place is the lack of education about how to work with and be with our emotion. And even the question, what is the purpose of emotion? So that's a question that rarely appears. So if we get the idea, I actually saw this, a doctor, wise doctor recently said he doesn't believe that there's anything in the human that doesn't need to be there. 
So hmm. creation is very intelligent. Creation, it doesn't waste its energies, just like you were saying. So if there's a gallbladder, there's a reason. Don't just take it out. If there's an appendix, there's a reason. Don't just take it out. If there's tonsils, there's a reason. Don't just take them out. Because everything is there purposefully. Well, if there's emotion, there's purpose behind the fact we have emotion. And it's there for a reason. And part of that, as an example, is the empathy. We looked at the idea of empathy as emotional pathway. So the emotional pathways between people and, and how that actually contributes to that feeling of community. So the support that comes with empathetic connection with others working together towards a joint project. This is why people like to gather together in churches, in synagogues, in mosques, in religious places. It's not only to try to be with something higher, invisible, of course, there's the energies, you know, to be with this invisible something other, but also then the communion with other people by being together and kind of surrendering together and having a moment before often going back into the world and getting back into their individualistic concerns. But that's an emotive, rather than emotional, it's an emotive gathering. So we can use emotion purposefully toward what it is that we are directing our life towards. It can also be triggered out of us by stimulants. So very much the idea of the kind of stimulation that our brain Received, so we get on that number six bus and keep going round. Well, there's also emotional programming in just the same way. So people, you'll hear it automatically kind of going, ah, when there's a, suddenly there's a picture of a child or if something's not so nice, it's ooh. So the emotions are easily triggered. Not to say one's right or wrong, good or bad, that's not relevant, but they're easily triggered. And we want to... Well, that's a problem. We're staying with the problem. So if our emotions are easily triggered and we have a certain amount, let's say per day, we've got 10 units per day and we can use it purposefully. But by the time we've been through the triggering of what's coming from the media about some disaster somewhere in the world, and then there's something else come at us through the radio and something else through the internet, by the time we reach lunchtime, there's not so much emotion left. As you said, it's been drawn out. It's been robbed. And if we don't have real emotion, what do we do? We produce a synthetic act. Yeah. So we start to get into an act, a pretense. And if if any word is to indicate something about states of stress, the word pretense is such a great word because it says we get tense in advance. We're going into a situation pretense. We're already tensed up. We're not authentic. We're not in our natural, authentic self in which we can feel comfortable. We're like, oh, I'm going into this situation. I'm not sure how it's going to work. I've used up my emotion this morning, and I'm going in with a state of tenseness. So the adrenals are firing away. You know, there, there's, there's a stress reaction going on. And, of course, if we get two stresses at once, we go from stress to distress. Hmm. So we go in as a distressed person. And then we wonder why we didn't do so well in the interview. <laughs> yes. And you actually offer that a simple way to think about emotion is that it's energy in motion. And as you're framing now, that the idea is that we ought to be directing the energy that moves us, the energy in motion, in a purposeful, 
intentional way. And they, the invitation there is not to suppress because, as you said, nothing is here without a purpose. In, I sound British when I use two negatives, but <laughs> so let me restate that. <laughs> uh, the, even anger and those kind of emotions, they have a purposeful engineering in the human system. And anger is a fantastical energy if you use it correctly to get yourself redirected to what is important for you and lead yourself in a purposeful way. Or if it turns to an uncontrolled rage, you can burn in just a few minutes of rage, you can burn energy that you have developed maybe over three or six or nine months. That's the danger in, uh, we're talking about not just physical energies, but emotional, spiritual energies and the, the preciousness of these energies and what they are meant to do and how they are meant to serve the human system in this bigger conundrum that we are about to explore and move into in, in future episodes as we look to begin to open more the ideas of the human promise and the human proposition. So in summation, one of the ways to tell the story that we attempted to explore is that we've been developing the human predicament through those different dimensions where we attempted to synthesize their interrelationship. And one simple way to synthesize what the human predicament story is about, it is about the story of the condition where life begins to work against itself, against its well-being, against its natural intelligence, against its evolutionary possibilities, where we humans inadvertently, because of the way we let ourselves be captured by our emotions, because of the way we get depleted and uh, fragmented in our energies, because of the way we get addicted to the junk knowledge and junk energy that are not useful for us, because of the way we let the brain run amok, all those things we can inadvertently become anti-life agents instead of the living agents of the human possibility supporting life and evolution. And, and what we attempted to do was to wander into these conundrums and to truly immerse ourselves not with the suggestion that there is an easy fix solution because that would be a very arrogant position to take but rather the humility of getting immersed in the compound conundrum of being alive at this time. And then, as we do, to begin to realize and sense that right there, right next to the problem, right next to the challenge, always nearby, there is help and there is assistance inside us, in between us, all around us. And that getting immersed in these challenging predicaments is one way, one path to the point that you described as the surrender pivot. Because only when I reach the I can't do I become open to all that, that's around me to 
support me, to uplift me, to encourage me, and to offer grace and redemption. To use some words that we will need to come back to, to frame them in a whole new context. So that's a bit of how I would synthesize the predicament story. Anything that comes alive for you to, to build on that? Yeah, what arises in me is that we've lost the fundamental question. Like there is some kind of distillation. Why is the human in the predicament that we're in? And there's a fundamental question that children ask and parents avoid and teachers avoid, in my experience, which is, why am I here? And why are we here? What is the purpose of being a human on the planet? And it's very easy to go into second and third principle, which is why well, I need to make money, I need to have a job, I need to raise the children, I need to this, I need to... And that's where the human predicament, to me, then compounds, because the further we move away from the fundamental question, which is an esoteric question, it's the simplest of questions in a way, but then it goes everywhere, because what is our purpose on Earth? What is the purpose of the human on earth, what is the purpose of organic life on earth? But as we're human, we tend to focus on us humans. So why are we here individually and also collectively? And that, if we spend our life causing ourselves to become well-maintained, causing ourselves, let's say, to become a wealthy individual, pass on a legacy to the children, Great if we say, well, I support this particular religion or that particular religion, but does it address the question, why am I here? So I'm left with that as a kind of a distilled uh, inquiry. Absolutely. And right there with the purpose inquiry is where we may choose to pick it up as we journey on, because what we've attempted to do is to, as, as we said earlier on, it, it's Getting a map is useless unless you can see where you are on the map, which is, again, where you started today. We've got to recognize where we are in the first place, because if, if we don't recognize where we are, if we don't recognize the, the predicament, it's going to be too easy to move into the promise and the proposition and the purpose from a place of fantasy. And coming inside some of the challenging aspects of the human predicament then there is an invitation that we make in that, inside ourselves and, and with each other, to enter the, the contemplative search of the purpose and of the human promise. Yes. So all of that to be developed and to be continued. And I think to take up the comment of that eminent doctor, no party's here for no reason to be British, including our ego, including it's all a matter of an appendix has a purpose, which is to be an appendix and it has a function. Every part of us has a function. So the predicament may be that we're using wrong things for right functions and right things for wrong functions. So somehow we're not able to be finding the purpose for which we're here. And I'm restating the case really, but it's, yeah. we have what we need. We're not anything missing. And every part has a purpose. So then it's discovering what that is rather than assuming it is known and saying, well, that's all, that's all great. Now I'm going to go and become a skier or whatever. So can these explorations into the predicament 
of the human situation. Can they help us uh, unlock, catapult us to the kind of evolution that's seeking to engage humans at this time? All of that to be explored and to be continued. To be discovered. Thank you. Thank you, David. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.